0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Preach Impediment on Grace. In our churches, we love to use big words.
1: We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness.
0: See what I mean? Inconceivable. While well, I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at EdenHollow.com. Now let's jump into today's episode. Today we're doing a special bonus episode on the concept of grace because this concept is so important and something we really do need to strive to understand as well as we can. One of the parts of the conversation I had with Edwin Crozier that came out yesterday was on pictures of grace from scripture. And while I didn't have time in our short episodes to do that, Yesterday, I did want to include that for you because I do think that these pictures of grace help us to understand this concept so much better than we do just based on a word and a definition. Let's jump right in.
1: Um, okay, so first question: What what does grace look like practically? I have a, a series that I like to do that I just call "Pictures of Grace," and there's a couple of different ones. And so I'll tell you what I'll do: I'll share with you two of the practical pictures that I think help and you can decide which one you want to keep in here or if you want to use them both. (laughs) Is that okay? Okay. So the, okay. So I think a practical picture of grace as it is involved in salvation is found with Israel at the promised land. Specifically as we look back at what happens in Numbers chapter 14, um, in Numbers chapter 14, the people rebel against God. They won't go into the land. And so, so they don't get to go in the land. And God rebukes them and he punishes them. And one of the interesting things is that there's, there's a whole lot that miss what happens. Let's see here. Uh, Numbers chapter 14. Find, oh, yeah. Beginning in verse 39. A lot of people miss this. In numbers 14:39, when Moses told these words to all the people, the people mourned greatly. They rose early in the morning, went up to the heights of the hill country saying, "Here we are. We'll go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned." But Moses said, "Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you lest you be struck down before your enemies." Uh it goes down verse 44, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. First point that we need to recognize, and that is we can't work, fight, or earn our way into salvation. We can't work, fight, or earn our way into that. Here, they were going without God and it didn't work. We just can't do it. But here's the second thing we need to recognize, and this is the one that I think a lot of folks miss, God has already won the victory. God has already won it. Here, I'm, I'm just going to read some passages real quick. Numbers 20 and verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Not that I will give them, I have given it to them. Numbers 20 and 24, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel. In Numbers 27 and verse 12, The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given. All of this is before Israel has crossed the Jordan and gotten into the land. It's not just in Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days of your life. We're seeing it over and over again. In Numbers 32, uh, he's as he's talking to the, the Israelites who are saying, you know what? We want to keep this land on the east side of the Jordan. Here's what he says: Why will you This is Numbers thirty-two verse seven. Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going to the land that the Lord had given them. Here's why this one's important. This one's important because what some people will say is, well, he's just speaking of the certainty that this second generation will get it. But here's what Moses says about the first generation God had given them the land, He had already won the victory. We could read through more passages on this, but I think you get the point here. God has won the victory. I can't win the victory, but God has already won the victory. And, and that's the way it is for our salvation as we consider that Jesus has won the victory. He has won that victory for us already. All right, so now I know some folks are a little bit scared. Are you saying God's already won the victory? What, what, what? But this is why the look at Israel is so important because we must go up and take possession of the salvation God has given us. We must go up and take possession of that salvation. This is the problem with Israel God having given them the land did not mean that the land just kind of slid under their feet. What did they have to do? They had to cross the Jordan. They had to fight the battles. God had already won the victory. God had already given them the land. And what that was supposed to do was produce in them the motivation, the drive, the faithfulness to go take the land. And I think when it talks about us, this is what Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What amazes me, Adam, is that a lot of people today, when they hear about grace, they assume that being saved by grace means I'm not supposed to do anything. But Paul says, look, God is the one who's working in you, so get to work. It's because God is working. It is because God has won the victory that anything I do matters. And so I can go take hold of that salvation. I can pursue the righteousness. I can pursue the salvation. I can work out my salvation with fear and trembling, not because I'm amazing, but because God is working. Just as he had won that land for them already, they could go take possession of it. I think that's a very important concept. We must go take it. Uh, I do think, though, the final thing when we look at Israel is if you forget who won the victory, you will lose it. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 11, God says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Because in verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. So we, we need to recognize who it is that wins that victory. If I decide to abandon God who won the victory for me, I don't get to keep living in the land. And so we see this picture of grace practically. I can't win it. God has won it. So I need to pursue it and take it. But I need to remember always who has won it and continue in that allegiance to God. I think that's a picture of grace in a practical way for us in our lives. The second picture that uh, I have, I think a picture, a practical picture of grace in our lives is also... Um, Peter, in Matthew chapter 14. Um, In Matthew chapter 14, Peter gets to walk on the water. And I think there's a really powerful, practical picture of grace here, one that I know I missed for a long time. And I just, I want to walk through this. I do think it's important to recognize that when Jesus said, guys, don't be afraid, it's me. When Peter called out to him, he said, well, if it is you, command me to come on the water. He didn't say, if it's you, suggest. He didn't say, if it's you, allow. He didn't. He said, command. This is a command. I think it's important for us to recognize that. God really does have commands. But what a crazy command for Peter to ask for. Command me to walk on the water. I, I think that's so interesting. Why would Peter even word it that way? I'll tell you why. Because I think what we have here is this moment of great faith where Peter recognized if Jesus has commanded me to do this, he will provide the power for me to do it. Not, well, let me, let me not get ahead of myself. So what does he do? He jumps out of the boat or he gets out of the boat. So here is an action of faith where he accepts faith in Jesus and he gets out on the water. And what does he do? He actually walks on the water. So now here's my question for you, Adam. Did did Peter walk on the water because he was just so great at walking on water? No, of course not. How was it that Peter walked on the water? God, you know what we call that? Grace. That's grace. That's You know, the interesting thing is for most of us, we don't see God's grace until after Peter has his mess up in a minute and sinks. And then calls out to Jesus to save him, and Jesus saves him. We all see grace right there, but most of us walk right through this little part and miss, why, why is Peter able to walk on the water? That is because of the grace of Jesus. And so, I'd like to make a correction in things that we preachers have often said. I've heard preachers say, if God commands it, that means we can do it. So go do it. I do not believe that is true. If God commands it, then he will give us the power to do it, so go do it. And that's what's happening here. When Jesus commands Peter to walk on the water, Peter cannot walk on the water. We can't walk on water. It's something we cannot do. But when Peter, in faith, stepped on the water... Jesus walked him on the water, and that is God's power to overcome sin. That is grace. When we look in Ephesians chapter four through six, it's like six times we're told about the walk we're supposed to have. And what I need to recognize is I can't perform that walk. Now, I know what some, some folks get upset about me saying that, but I, I continue to say it. I hope it's not about attracting attention to myself, but I think it's, I hope it's about attracting attention to a truth that I have missed often, and I think that gets missed often, that when God tells me to do something, it's not I have the ability to do it. Some folks would say, well, okay, if what you mean is I can't do it on my own, well, yeah, but on my own is redundant. If I can't do it on my own, I can't do it. And I think we need to say that. And so I turn to Jesus and I accept his command and I pursue his command because I believe in his grace, in his strength to lift me up. And so I'm going to step out of the boat. And so he tells me, you know what, you need to, you see a brother in sin, you you need to go talk to him. I I don't think I can do that. I I just don't, I don't, I don't think I can. uh, No. Okay. I can't do it. But I tell you what, Jesus can, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to step out of the boat and I'm going to go talk to the brother, and it'll work out the way Jesus allows it to work out. It'll, you know, but I will do what Jesus says, not because I'm so great at it, but because I know if He's commanded me, He will empower me. Uh, We all love Isaiah 40 about God who gives strength to the weak and will rise up on wings like eagles and. run and not grow weary, and walk and not faint. That's what grace is. It's the fact that I am relying on his strength and his power. If he's told me to do something, he will empower me to do it. So I need to go do it. Go work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul said in Philippians, because God is at work in you. Now, of course, with Peter, he does start to look around and he gets distracted and he remembers, I can't walk on water. And so he sinks And he does call out to Jesus. And Jesus does save him. And twice Peter gets to walk on water. And there we find another aspect of grace. It's that aspect of forgiveness. But I think a practical picture of grace, what it looks like practically in my life, is the idea of God has said to do this, I'm going to do it. Because I'm so good? No. Because he is strong enough. Because he will rule me. Because he will strengthen me.
0: I hope that this has been a helpful bonus episode for you, that these pictures of God's grace that we find in scripture, and these aren't the only ones. There are many, many more. But when you see God interacting with his people, often you see God interacting with grace. And that grace that we see God acting with is an example for us and how we should act with others and an example for us and how we should understand God's grace toward us. Hopefully this has been helpful for you as a little bonus episode, a little extra teaching for you. Tune in tomorrow for my final thoughts on grace. And if you've enjoyed the episode, we would encourage you to share it with others. Until next time.